The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the show. We have a great show today. Mike Palindrome is here, back for more good conversation. We're trying something a little different today. We're going to focus on a short story, A Hunger Artist, by Franz Kafka, which is such a great story. One of my all-time favorites. For those of you who know and love this story, you are in for a treat. You're going to get the chance to have fun with us as we talk about it, almost paragraph by paragraph. For those of you who don't know the story, don't worry, because I'm going to read the story, the whole story. Here's how it will work. Mike and I will introduce the story, then we'll take a break and listen to almost the whole thing. We'll save the ending, then we'll come back, we'll offer our thoughts, we'll listen to the ending, and then we'll come back once again to wrap things up. That sounds way more complicated than it's going to be. It's like a roller coaster. <laughs> Think of it like a roller coaster, which I had more than my fill of recently. That's the thing when you have a 13-year-old and a 10-year-old. If the 13-year-old wants to go on and the 10-year-old doesn't, dad steps in. I, I want him to have some company waiting in line, buckling himself into that car. So even though I feel concussed, and probably am concussed by those things. I keep going coaster after coaster, thrill after thrill. But my point is, they don't over-explain it when you get in. They don't say, okay, you're going to go up, and then you'll go down, and then you'll go around in a loop, and then upside down, and then you'll swing through a double corkscrew, and all that. Instead, they just say, buckle up, keep your hands inside the coaster, and enjoy the ride. So here we go. Buckle up, people, and enjoy the ride. A Hunger Artist was written in 1922, years after Kafka's masterpiece, The Metamorphosis. It was also after the trial, the castle, in the penal colony. It was after just about everything major that we attribute to Kafka, in fact. There were a few short stories he wrote after. It was not his very last story, but it's important to think of this in the kind of twilight of Kafka's career. Think of it as kind of a farewell, a valediction, an ending point. Kafka had been sick for several years when he wrote this. That's the context in which he wrote this beautiful, majestic, funny, moving, richly human story. We'll introduce it once Mike gets here, but I wanted to say a few words about the setting to maybe give you a sense of why it resonated so much with me. I grew up in a small town without much going on. Maybe things are different now, thanks to the internet. But my world was not one of networking with other communities. It was my community, and that was it. <laughs> it was like wall. There might have been, might as well have been walls around the town for a kid. You could ride your bike anywhere as long as you stayed within the town. Once in a while, you could venture out. Once in a while, you'd get taken somewhere, Chicago, Madison, Milwaukee, get exposed to a little more of the world. But for the most part, 
My world was the town. I think that's different. We had television and radio, of course. Those were provided a common ground with the rest of the world, but those were one-sided, those communications. You don't talk back. There's no comment section. That's what I mean when I say the internet maybe has changed things. Maybe people don't feel so isolated now. They can be connected all over the place. Anyway, most of the television and radio and books that I got came from California or New York, places I'd never been. They might as well have been beamed in from Mars. So here I am in this little town, growing and learning, learning from the adults who are there, now and then taking a little trip and being exposed to a little more, but mostly it's the world of dusty softball diamonds and a dying main street with a hardware store or two, some doomed new business that's opened or one that's just been hanging around years after it's been profitable. Mostly we were left alone with our bikes and basements. That, that's the world of a kid in a town like that. Everyone's house had a basement which is where we would play. Basements with cement floors, maybe a rug thrown down. You could roller skate down there. Some people had a ping pong table. You could throw down a board game, lie on the carpet and play a board game. You could also maybe set up a little basketball hoop and eventually an Atari 2600 on an old black and white TV. It was a quiet place, that town, very very boring for kids. And now and then there'd be an event at school, maybe a bonfire or a high school football game, and you'd have to go to that. You wouldn't want to miss it. Churches would have pancake breakfasts and ludifisk dinners. And sometimes there'd be a town-wide event, like rummage sale days or a Memorial Day parade where things got a little busier. And then, once a year, we'd have the big show in June. A celebration, a week-long celebration. June days. There'd be a beer tent and a softball tournament and a carnival would come to town. A carnival with rides and games. And we were fascinated were fascinated when they pulled in with their trucks and their trailers and when they started erecting the rides, the equipment. We watched it all. I eventually went to work in a carnival. That's a whole other story. I won't get into that here now. But now I'm talking about the carnival that ran from our high school parking lot down the path to the grade school with lights and games and rides on either side. Softball games going on in the background with bleachers full of people and parking lots full of a Ferris wheel and the Roundup, the Scrambler, rides like that. It was, I think, the sort of world that Kafka talks about in this story, a hunger artist, in a way. This is the kind of town, a group of people waiting for this kind of entertainment to arrive. The crowd in A Hunger Artist is like a character, an invisible but very important character. Things have changed today. Back then, spectacle could be localized. 
on the internet, a hunger artist would be accessible to the world. Everything today can go viral. But Kafka's world is the world of the local circus, the carnival coming to town. You have your daily routine, and all of a sudden, strangers show up. Because in addition to the rides and the games, I mean, those didn't just come out of nowhere. They were brought in by men and women, families, people who worked the carnival. They were brought in by carnies, as we called them, and the carnies had their own world. The carnies lived in trailers, and they used to shower with a hose. They would get naked and hose each other down. And kids used to climb the bleachers of the softball diamond and try to look over the tops of the trailers to catch a glimpse of the spectacle. It was weird. It was something like something like treating people like animals, like going to a zoo, watching the carnies, which is that's this idea is all over the Kafka story. And it's all over circuses and freak shows. It jolts you. Who are you? Who is this person? And who am I watching this person in this way? This is a human being. Who are we? Who are we, the crowd, responding in this way? And one year, we had a kind of artist, an artist of sorts. Looking back, I didn't think this at the time. Looking back, I think of him as kind of an artist. He was the king of the carnies. (laughs) He was something to see. He transcended the rest of his brethren. He was a clown, sort of. He wore regular clothes, but clown makeup. He sat in a dunk tank. He had a microphone and a speaker, and he was an insult comic. Not a very good one, but an effective one for what he was trying to get done. I remember his catchphrase. Ha-ha-ha, high and dry. That's what he would say over and over. Ha-ha-ha, high and dry. And his job was to make people so angry that they paid money to try to dunk him. Hey, you with the face. Ahua, high and dry. Hey, fat guy, where's your wife? Did you eat her, fat guy? Ahua, high and dry. And the whole town turned out night after night to listen to him insult us and to watch half-drunk guys come down from the beer tent and lose their cool, and whip baseballs at the target they almost never hit. And the clown would sit there on his little bench inside the cage, laughing at us. Hi and dry. Oh, huh? Hi and dry. Hey. <laughs> hey, sh- hey, small fry. Oh, huh? Hi and dry. And then... A great rumor spread like wildfire. The police had arrested him. High and dry. Hey, everybody. High and dry is getting arrested. (laughs) That's what we called him. High and dry is getting arrested. And I never learned if it was drugs or what. I kind of wondered if someone had set him up. Someone who couldn't dunk him. Got so enraged that he had his pal and the police force just arrest him, plant something on him, or they probably didn't need to. They could find it. They didn't go after any of the other carnies. They just went after high and dry. 
the guy that infuriated people with his comic art. I remember seeing High and Dry in his clown makeup, his hands behind his back in handcuffs, being led slowly away to a squad car. He looked vulnerable outside of that cage. In the cage, he was a king with his microphone and his speaker. He could manipulate everyone. He could arouse their anger. Now he was just a pathetic drifter of a person being taken to jail with his hands behind him in pain. His art had been his downfall. We never again saw a carny like that. They returned year after year, but they didn't call attention to themselves ever again. We had destroyed that part of them. From then on, they toiled away in anonymity with grim expressions and dead, defeated eyes. Mike Palindrome. Franz Kafka, and a hunger artist after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Mike Palindrome, our old friend and the president of the Literature Supporters Club. Mike, welcome back to the History of Literature. Hey, Jack. So we have a great one today. Franz Kafka's The Hunger Artist. This might be my favorite short story of all time. I can vividly remember the first time I read it and the effect that it had on me. Where were you when you first encountered it? Um, I have to confess, I did not read him until college. Mm, and yeah. I don't know that that's such a confession. That's when I read him too, college. Well, I'm, I made my... <laughs> I made my uh, cousin, when he was 12, read Metamorphosis. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you were the old man in college, and you read, that's when you first read Kafka, or that's when you first read The hung, uh, Hunger Artist? No, that's the first, when I first read Kafka, and probably The Hunger Artist. I kind of yeah. 
binged on him. I read um, Metamorphosis and, and The Penal Colony and Hunger Artist and a, a bunch of others, and then probably read The Trial. Yeah. Didn't we read a Hunger Artist for a course that we were taking together? Yeah, yeah. in that modernity class. Yes. Right. That's right. Um, so, you know, and part of me thinks that it might be a young person's short story. I'm not sure if I had read it for the first time at my current age, if I would have, if it would immediately jump to the top of my list as my favorite short story. Part of it, I think, is it had that, it hit me at the right time. You know, it's sort of a, the humor is very dry, it's very tongue-in-cheek, and it it has these themes that uh, it reminds me now of David Letterman in those days, or Christopher Guest, or it's like a really smart, uh, yeah. completely deadpan comedian, and it, it touched on art and all of these things that were really important to me when I was 19 or 20. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's one of, it, it's a really good place to start. Mm, yeah. Um, your first Kafka, if you've yeah. never read him, yeah, because it covers so much ground and it's so it's it's such a light touch. Mm-hmm. I did think that I mean, this is the third time I've read him read it read it, and I I felt like it was it really was in translation. Mm. Yeah. And that there there wasn't a style on the level of a sentence, but there was it felt very high concept to me. And I was thinking, I was wondering if it, that's because I'm reading it in translation. Yeah. And I go back to the old uh, translation by the Moors. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I am going to, we're going to take a break and I'm going to read the story. Is there anything else we should tell the listeners before we listen to the first part of the short story? Well, I just want to, point out that it was written in 1922, which is a contemporary of uh, Joyce's Ulysses and Proust Mm. and Fitzgerald. But Mm -hmm. damn if it doesn't read like something you'd read online in Guernica or (laughs) McSweeney's today. It's it's just a really cool short story. Yeah. And even if some of the language, you'd probably be able to tell that it was written in the 20s from some of the language, at least in the translation I have, is definitely true. The concept is... Very modern, and as you say, it could be completely contemporary. Yeah, it'd be a funny experiment to just show it to people alongside things written in 2010s and see if people can identify it. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so let's take a break, and we'll listen to The uh, Hunger Artist. We're not going to read the ending We'll come back, and Mike and I will give some thoughts, and then we'll uh, finish up the story, and then we'll come back again for a wrap-up. Sounds good. A Hunger Artist by Franz Kafka During these last decades, the interest in professional fasting has markedly diminished. It used to pay very well to stage such great performances under one's own management, but today that is quite impossible. We live in a different world now. At one time, the whole town took a lively interest in the hunger artist. From day to day of his fast, the excitement mounted. Everybody wanted to see him at least once a day. There were people who bought season tickets for the last few days and sat from morning till night in front of his small, barred cage. Even in the nighttime, there were visiting hours when the whole effect was heightened by torches On fine days, the cage was set out in the open air, and then it was the children's special treat to see the hunger artist. 
For their elders, he was often just a joke that happened to be in fashion, but the children stood open-mouthed, holding each other's hands for greater security, marveling at him as he sat there, pallid in black tights, with his ribs sticking out so prominently, not even on a seat, but down among straw on the ground, sometimes giving a courteous nod, answering questions with a constrained smile, or perhaps stretching an arm through the bars so that one might feel how thin it was, and then again withdrawing deep into himself, paying no attention to anyone or anything, not even to the all-important striking of the clock that was the only piece of furniture in his cage, but merely staring into vacancy with half-shut eyes, now and then taking a sip from a tiny glass of water to moisten his lips. Besides casual onlookers, there were also relays of permanent watchers selected by the public, usually butchers, strangely enough, and it was their task to watch the hunger artist day and night, three of them at a time, in case he should have some secret recourse to nourishment. This was nothing but a formality, instituted to reassure the masses, for the initiates knew well enough that during his fast the artist would never in any circumstances, not even under forcible compulsion, swallow the smallest morsel of food. The honor of his profession forbade it. Not every watcher, of course, was capable of understanding this. There were often groups of night watchers who were very lax in carrying out their duties and deliberately huddled together in a retired corner to play cards with great absorption, obviously intending to give the hunger artist the chance of a little refreshment, which they supposed he could draw from some private hoard. Nothing annoyed the artist more than such watchers. They made him miserable. They made his fast seem unendurable. Sometimes he mastered his feebleness sufficiently to sing during their watch for as long as he could keep going, to show them how unjust their suspicions were. But that was of little use. They only wondered at his cleverness in being able to fill his mouth even while singing. Much more to his taste were the watchers who sat close up to the bars, who were not content with the dim night lighting of the hall, but focused him in the full glare of the electric pocket torch given them by the impresario. The harsh light did not trouble him at all. In any case, he could never sleep properly, and he could always drowse a little, whatever the light, at any hour, even when the hall was thronged with noisy onlookers. He was quite happy at the prospect of spending a sleepless night with such watchers. He was ready to exchange jokes with them, to tell them stories out of his nomadic life, anything at all to keep them awake and demonstrate to them again that he had no eatables in his cage and that he was fasting as not one of them could fast. But his happiest moment was when the morning came and an enormous breakfast was brought them at his expense on which they flung themselves with the keen appetite of healthy men after a weary night of wakefulness. Of course, there were people who argued that this breakfast was an unfair attempt to bribe the watchers, but that was going rather too far, and when they were invited to take on a night's vigil without a breakfast, merely for the sake of the cause, they made themselves scarce, although they stuck stubbornly to their suspicions." Such suspicions, anyhow, were a necessary accompaniment to the profession of fasting. 
No one could possibly watch The Hunger Artist continuously, day and night, and so no one could produce first-hand evidence that the fast had really been rigorous and continuous. Only the artist himself could know that. He was therefore bound to be the sole, completely satisfied spectator of his own fast. Yet for other reasons, he was never satisfied. It was not perhaps mere fasting that had brought him to such skeleton thinness that many people had regretfully to keep away from his exhibitions, because the sight of him was too much for them. Perhaps it was dissatisfaction with himself that had worn him down, for he alone knew what no other initiate knew, how easy it was to fast. It was the easiest thing in the world. He made no secret of this, yet people did not believe him. At the best, they set him down as modest. Most of them, however, thought he was out for publicity, or else was some kind of cheat, who found it easy to fast because he had discovered a way of making it easy, and then had the impudence to admit the fact, more or less. He had to put up with all that, and in the course of time had got used to it. But his inner dissatisfaction always rankled, and never yet, after any term of fasting, this must be granted to his credit, had he left the cage of his own free will. The longest period of fasting was fixed by his impresario at forty days. Beyond that term he was not allowed to go, not even in great cities, and there was good reason for it, too. Experience had proved that for about forty days the interest of the public could be stimulated by a steadily increasing pressure of advertisement. But after that, the town began to lose interest. Sympathetic support began notably to fall off. There were, of course, local variations, as between one town and another or one country and another. But as a general rule, forty days marked the limit. So, on the fortieth day, the flower-bedecked cage was opened, enthusiastic spectators filled the hall, a military band played, two doctors entered the cage to measure the results of the fast, which were announced through a megaphone, and finally two young ladies appeared, blissful at having been selected for the honor, to help the hunger artist down the few steps leading to a small table on which was spread a carefully chosen invalid repast. And at this very moment the artist always turned stubborn. True, he would entrust his bony arms to the outstretched helping hands of the ladies bending over him, but stand up he would not. Why stop fasting at this particular moment after forty days of it? He had held out for a long time, a period of time without limit. Why stop now? when he was in his best fasting form, or rather, not yet quite in his best fasting form. Why should he be cheated of the fame he would get for fasting longer, for being not only the record hunger artist of all time, which presumably he was already, but for beating his own record by a performance beyond human imagination, since he felt that there were no limits to his capacity for fasting? His public pretended to admire him so much. Why should it have so little patience with him? If he could endure fasting longer, why shouldn't the public endure it? Besides, he was tired. He was comfortable sitting in the straw, and now he was supposed to lift himself to his full height and go down to a meal the very thought of which gave him a nausea 
that only the presence of the ladies kept him from betraying, and even that with an effort. And he looked up into the eyes of the ladies, who were apparently so friendly and in reality so cruel, and shook his head, which felt too heavy on its strengthless neck. But then there happened yet again what always happened. The impresario came forward without a word, for the band made speech impossible, lifted his arms in the air above the artist as if inviting heaven to look down upon its creature here in the straw, this suffering martyr, which indeed he was, although in quite another sense, grasped him around the emaciated waist with exaggerated caution so that the frail condition he was in might be appreciated, and committed him to the care of the blenching ladies, not without secretly giving him a shaking so that his legs and body tottered and swayed. The artist now submitted completely, his head lolled on his breast as if it had landed there by chance. His body was hollowed out, his legs, in a spasm of self-preservation, clung close to each other at the knees, yet scraped on the ground as if it were not really solid ground, as if they were only trying to find solid ground, and the whole weight of his body a featherweight, after all, relapsed onto one of the ladies, who, looking around for help and panting a little, this post of honor was not at all what she had expected it to be, first stretched her neck as far as she could to keep her face at least free from contact with the artist, then, finding this impossible, and her more fortunate companion not coming to her aid, but merely holding extended in her own trembling hand, the little bunch of knuckle-bones that was the artist's, to the great delight of the spectators, burst into tears and had to be replaced by an attendant who had long been stationed in readiness. Then came the food, a little of which the impresario managed to get between the artist's lips while he sat in a kind of half-fainting trance to the accompaniment of cheerful patter designed to distract the public's attention from the artist's condition. After that, a toast was drunk to the public, supposedly prompted by a whisper from the artist in the impresario's ear. The band confirmed it with a mighty flourish. The spectators melted away, and no one had any cause to be dissatisfied with the proceedings. No one except the hunger artist himself. He only, as always. So he lived for many years with small regular intervals of recuperation, invisible glory, honored by the world, yet in spite of that troubled in spirit, and all the more troubled because no one would take his trouble seriously. What comfort could he possibly need? What more could he possibly wish for? And if some good-natured person feeling sorry for him, tried to console him by pointing out that his melancholy was probably caused by fasting. It could happen, especially when he had been fasting for some time. That he reacted with an outburst of fury, and to the general alarm began to shake the bars of his cage like a wild animal. Yet the impresario had a way of punishing these outbreaks, which he rather enjoyed putting into operation. He would apologize publicly for the artist's behavior, 
which was only to be excused, he admitted, because of the irritability caused by fasting, a condition hardly to be understood by well-fed people. Then, by natural transition, he went on to mention the artist's equally incomprehensible boast that he could fast for much longer than he was doing. He praised the high ambition, the good will, the great self-denial undoubtedly implicit in such a statement, and then quite simply countered it by bringing out photographs, which were also on sale to the public, showing the artist on the fortieth day of a fast, lying in bed almost dead from exhaustion. This perversion of the truth, familiar to the artist though it was, always unnerved him afresh and proved too much for him. What was a consequence of the premature ending of his fast was here presented as the cause of it. To fight against this lack of understanding, against a whole world of non-understanding, was impossible. Time and again, in good faith, he stood by the bars, listening to the impresario. But as soon as the photographs appeared, he always let go, and sank with a groan back into his straw, and the reassured public could once more come close and gaze at him. A few years later, when the witnesses of such scenes called them to mind, they often failed to understand themselves at all. For meanwhile, the aforementioned change in public interest had set in. It seemed to happen almost overnight. There may have been profound causes for it, but who was going to bother about that? At any rate, the pampered hunger artist suddenly found himself deserted one fine day by the amusement seekers, who went streaming past him to other, more favored attractions. For the last time, the impresario hurried him over half Europe to discover whether the old interest might still survive here and there, all in vain everywhere, as if by secret agreement. A positive revulsion from professional fasting, was in evidence. Of course, it could not really have sprung up so suddenly as all that, and many premonitory symptoms, which had not been sufficiently remarked or suppressed during the rush and glitter of success, now came retrospectively to mind. But it was now too late to take any countermeasures. Fasting would surely come into fashion again at some future date yet that was no comfort for those living in the present. What, then, was the hunger artist to do? He had been applauded by thousands in his time and could hardly come down to showing himself in a street booth at village fairs. And as for adopting another profession, he was not only too old for that, but too fanatically devoted to fasting. So he took leave of the impresario, his partner, in an unparalleled career, and hired himself to a large circus. In order to spare his own feelings, he avoided reading the conditions of his contract. A large circus with its enormous traffic in replacing and recruiting men, animals, and apparatus can always find a use for people at any time, even for a hunger artist, provided, of course, that he does not ask too much and in this particular case, anyhow, it was not only the artist who was taken on, but his famous and long-known name as well. Indeed, considering the peculiar nature of his performance, which was not impaired by advancing age, it could not be objected 
that here was an artist past his prime, no longer at the height of his professional skill, seeking a refuge in some quiet corner of a circus. On the contrary, the hunger artist averred that he could fast as well as ever, which was entirely credible. He even alleged that if he were allowed to fast as he liked, and this was at once promised him without more ado, he could astound the world by establishing a record never yet achieved, a statement that certainly provoked a smile among the other professionals, since it left out of account the change in public opinion, which the hunger artist, in his zeal, conveniently forgot. He had not, however, actually lost his sense of the real situation and took it as a matter of course that he and his cage should be stationed, not in the middle of the ring as a main attraction, but outside, near the animal cages, on a site that was after all easily accessible. Large and gaily painted placards made a frame for the cage and announced what was to be seen inside it. When the public came thronging out in the intervals to see the animals, they could hardly avoid passing the hunger artist's cage and stopping there for a moment. Perhaps they might even have stayed longer, had not those pressing behind them in the narrow gangway, who did not understand why they should be held up on their way toward the excitements of the menagerie, made it impossible for anyone to stand gazing quietly for any length of time. And that was the reason why the hunger artist, who had of course been looking forward to these visiting hours as the main achievement of his life, began instead to shrink from them. At first he could hardly wait for the intervals. It was exhilarating to watch the crowds come streaming his way, until only too soon, not even the most obstinate self-deception, clung to almost consciously, could hold out against the fact. The conviction was borne in upon him that these people, most of them, to judge from their actions, again and again, without exception, were all on their way to the menagerie. And the first sight of them from the distance remained the best. For when they reached his cage, he was at once deafened by the storm of shouting and abuse that arose from the two contending factions, which renewed themselves continuously. Of those who wanted to stop and stare at him, he soon began to dislike them more than the others. Not out of real interest, but only out of obstinate self-assertiveness, and those who wanted to go straight on to the animals. When the first great rush was passed, the stragglers came along, and these whom nothing could have prevented from stopping to look at him as long as they had breath, raced past with long strides, hardly even glancing at him, in their haste to get to the menagerie in time. And all too rarely did it happen that he had a stroke of luck when some father of a family fetched up before him with his children, pointed a finger at the hunger artist, and explained at length what the phenomenon meant, telling stories of earlier years when he himself had watched similar but more thrilling performances, and the children still rather uncomprehending since neither inside nor outside school had they been sufficiently prepared for this lesson. What did they care about fasting? Yet showed by the brightness of their intent eyes that new and better times might be coming. 
Perhaps, said the Hungardist to himself many a time, things would be a little better if his cage were set not quite so near the menagerie. That made it too easy for people to make their choice, to say nothing of what he suffered from the stench of the menagerie, the animal's restlessness by night, the carrying past of raw lumps of flesh for the beasts of prey, the roaring at feeding times, which depressed him continually. But he did not dare to lodge a complaint with the management. After all, he had the animals to thank for the troops of people who passed his cage, among whom there might always be one here and there to take an interest in him. And who could tell where they might seclude him if he called attention to his existence, and thereby to the fact that, strictly speaking, he was only an impediment on the way to the menagerie. A small impediment, to be sure, one that grew steadily less. People grew familiar with the strange idea that they could be expected, in times like these, to take an interest in a hunger artist. And with this familiarity, the verdict went out against him. He might fast as much as he could, and he did so, but nothing could save him now. People passed him by. Just try to explain to anyone the art of fasting. Anyone who has no feeling for it cannot be made to understand it. The fine placards grew dirty and illegible. They were torn down. The little notice board telling the number of fast days achieved, which at first was changed carefully every day, had long stayed at the same figure. For after the first few weeks, even this small task seemed pointless to the staff. And so the artist simply fasted on and on, as he had once dreamed of doing. And it was no trouble to him just as he had always foretold. But no one counted the days, no one, not even the artist himself, knew what records he was already breaking, and his heart grew heavy. And once in a while some leisurely passerby stopped, made merry over the old figure on the board, and spoke of swindling. That was in its way the stupidest lie ever invented by indifference and inborn malice, since it was not the hunger artist who was cheating, he was working honestly, but the world was cheating him of his reward. And we're back, Mike. Let's start with the first paragraph. <laughs> it's masterful, isn't it? Uh. We live in a different world now. I think I have the same translation as yours. So. Yeah. I just felt like it sets the scene so perfectly. We get uh yeah, we get a toss back to the earlier era. We see the excitement of the town and the, how the adults are somewhat jaded. We get those the children with their open mouths and, and this man in the cage who's sitting on the straw taking sips of water. Sometimes he stretches his arm through the bars so everyone can feel how thin his arm is. And sometimes he withdraws into himself and his eyes kind of dim. And and right away, the first paragraph, we have this question, is this a freak at a freak show? Is it an artist? We see that it's an artist from the title. You know, it's kind of both. It's yeah. It makes us ask who we are as an audience and who he is and who he thinks he is. It, it, you're in disbelief as a reader when it first starts because you just think, like, it, 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 is this what it is? Yeah. Like, 
seems like a joke, but it's yeah. so uh, it's so realistically described. Yeah, I mean the way it jump, it has like this historical. Uh, it has a history to it, you know. Like these were the times when yeah. <laughs> people were interested, and later, you know, people had lost interest, and the artist, you know, right, still persevered. And yes. there are these details, like his his handler asked him to stop at forty days because beyond that, you know, the public wouldn't accept. Right, right. <laughs> so, there, yeah, it feels like a whole industry or a whole uh, phenomenon is being described. And that, that nostalgic element of it is so important because it not only gives it a kind of, you know, it, it pervades the story. It gives the narrator a kind of vantage point and gives the story a kind of feel like it's a sepia-toned uh, yeah. kind of story. But it also it reflects the hunger artist himself, that he's part of a a dying era or a, a, a passing of the the ages have sort of passed him by. Yeah, I mean, it's it foreshadows a lot of different social theories and cultural theories about the society spectacle and consumerism. What does it mean? Because he has like the good audience and the bad audience. Yeah. The bad audience try to tempt him to see if they, he's <laughs> right. going to eat. Right. And yeah. The good audience are respectful <laughs> and they stay the night and then he serves them breakfast or something. Oh, yeah. So we're on the it's second like, paragraph now. So we, we see yeah. that there's this cynicism about his achievements. And so he needs people to watch to make sure he's not cheating. But he is so insulted by this because the <laughs> honor of his profession would never allow him to cheat. And here's the detail that I love is... <laughs> One of my favorite lines in the whole story, I think, is right there in the second paragraph where it says uh, that butchers, they bring in butchers to watch him. <laughs> it's such a great uh, line. And I don't know if you knew this. I was doing some research on this. There actually were real hunger artists in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Yeah, you know, I saw there was like some offhand mention of that. So. Is yeah. that just in Europe? Or well, was there it? was a really yeah. famous one in New York who lasted 40 days. And uh, then there yeah. was a guy who traveled all over Europe um, doing these uh, hunger <laughs> demonstrations. And uh, the interesting thing, when they, <laughs> even the detail where he had watchers at night was yeah. uh, pulled from real life. But uh, the actual hunger artist had farmers watch him to see if he cheated and it made me think it's a very kafka Kafka kafka-esque touch to bring the butchers in and it's so perfect because you know farmers i mean although farmers are also familiar with death and and animals but they grow things yeah they feed the world but butchers are almost more like executioners they deal with the slaughter and with the slabs of meat and there's meat running throughout this story and of course the hunger artist himself is kind of a piece of meat in a way that's sort of the freak show part of this uh but i love the detail that (laughs) (laughs) he's so angry about the fact that they're watching him and doubting him and they think he has a private 
a, a private store of food that he can eat at night. And so some of them play cards in the corner and they just <laughs> turn their backs ostentatiously to to let him cheat if he wants to. And and he doesn't because he has too much honor in his art. And then that he, as you said, he buys the watchers a fabulous breakfast in the morning. He pays for it himself. <laughs> it's like he's it's like he refuses to be treated like a freak. That he's he's the magnanimous one, and and then, you know, of all the things to buy them, he he literally breaks their fast for them while he himself goes on with his hunger because he's a pro. <laughs> <laughs> I just love the hunger artist. I love this guy. Yeah, I mean, the idea of him as a professional, and I think you know, there's like lines like, you know, the honor of his profession forbade it. Yeah. All right. You know, and that, you know, only the artist himself could know that, that the fast had been rigorous and continuous, like no one else could feel it. And it starts to um, sink in that the hunger artist could be a stand in for any artist and mm. perhaps a writer. Yeah, a writer, you know? a lot like Kafka, who, among other things, he's so famous for asking his friend to burn all of his writings when he died. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, and uh, like you mentioned on your, uh, you know, the other podcast about Kafka, you know, his writing desk had that one sign that said, wait. Yeah. You know, and so there, there's something very yep. lonely and, um, you know, kind of like in his own hell, the way Kafka writes, I think. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And he's so devoted, so devoted to literature and it's not at all clear that literature is going to repay him, you know, in any kind of equal measure. Yeah. What is he doing it for? Why is he so devoted to literature? It's not making him happier. It's almost like he is a lot like the hunger artist. I think that's kind of an inescapable comparison. And also that he sees, you know, the flashier kinds of art he sees the showbiz side he sees the the entertainment side and he is choosing something different with his yeah. devotion to a kind of literature that maybe isn't going to be a popular best-selling kind of writing but instead will be something for the critics or something for future generations or maybe just something to satisfy himself when i re read this i i just thought what, what well how is he going to pull this off yeah and, you know, that, that sort of that feeling as a reader is allied with the fear that you have that this guy might die Yeah, as he's starving. Yeah. And then there's also his, his supporter, but also his greatest nemesis, the impresario, yeah. who is such a great element, the guy who comes in and, and on the one hand, he's saying, um, you know, we can, the public is only going to accept so much. And you, there's that. That great moment where you, the way the sentence runs, you think that the reason why the public isn't going to accept him continuing is because you think that they won't want to see him die, that they just, uh, it's too barbaric. But instead, it's kind of like they'll just get bored. <laughs> and the crowds get smaller. And so the impresario stages this big exit. I love how they, 
the description of the ending when the fast is over and how the ladies come to help him out of the cage. And one of the, one of the ladies is so upset that his head kind of wobbles and lands on her face. And, and, <laughs> and, you know, she's, she's, she's upset. There's a military band playing and there's that great line. He looked up into the eyes of the ladies who were apparently so friendly and in reality, so cruel because <laughs> the hunger artist has, has not wanted this to end. He wants to go for the record and, and keep keep up his devotion to his art. And then the, the impresario shakes him a little bit to show how feeble he is. And it's really uh it's really kind of a sadistic scene. You can imagine if we're analogizing this to Kafka himself, you can imagine him feeling like well, I'm just poked and prodded and misunderstood, and nobody will just leave me alone and let me do the thing I really want to do, which is write great literature. The the, the physical description is, uh, you know, evocative of um, uh, a lot of modern writing. I, I felt that it's mm. it's almost perverse, yeah. the, the, the level of detail, because it's not quite realism, a realist novel, because... It jumps so much, but then the moment when, you know, the contortions of the body, it, it just struck me as so modern. There's there's a David Foster Wallace short story that the, story, the hunger artist reminds me of. It's uh, about a guy who decides that he's always been complimented about his, um, his flexibility, so he decides he's going to mm. lick every part of his body. <laughs> and um, it's described in such physical detail of yeah. the body parts that it's very believable until you reach the point where he's got to lick the back of his neck uh, yeah. <laughs> and he dies. <laughs> and that's the end. <laughs> that does sound like David Foster Wallace might have been inspired by Kafka when he set out to write that story. I I, I felt that. And I, I, I think this story must have been hugely influential yeah um because you, you take a concept you start with the concept yep and then you figure out well i've got to come up with an ending but you know it, to, it'd be one thing if this was a a two-page story yeah you know and i think that's probably the move that a lot of contemporaries would make yeah and it seems like what kafka is showing here and i'm thinking of Writers like uh, Jim Shepard, a friend of the show, and George Saunders, and you know a lot of comic writers. The bar that Kafka is setting here is you can have these high-concept stories, and you can have these highly comic stories, but what will make it uh, more than just a joke, more than just a, a Saturday Night Live kind of sketch, is to work in the humanity of the people, both the hunger artist and even the impresario and all the other characters who just appear briefly, they all have a kind of pathos to them. And you can kind of empathize with all of them. And, and you really start to feel the hunger artist's quest and you, you don't want him to die, but you want him to fulfill, you want him to find some satisfaction and some fulfillment. And you want to see the boundaries of somebody who's this devoted to his art. And it's it's kind of beautiful. It's sad. It's uh, The whole thing is just packed with emotion. He, he does the right thing not having much dialogue because mm -hmm. the dialogue mm -hmm. would slow down the that historical 
atmosphere. Yeah. You know, it would yeah. be too present. Yeah, it is all sort of described almost like we're watching a, a silent film of a lot of it. Then there's the part, I'm in the fourth paragraph now. These are long paragraphs, but I'm in the fourth yeah. paragraph now where his his melancholy turns to fury. And it says, to general alarm, he began to shake the bars of his cage like a wild animal. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, we're really rooting for him, I think, to let him be. He's He's just human trying to do a a thing that he'll be proud of. He's not hurting anyone. And you feel like, why don't they just let him keep going? But you also understand why you wouldn't let someone starve himself to death in front of crowds of people. In a moment like that, you know, it start, you start thinking of classic stories like, you know, the emperor's new clothes and those kind of, is there some conspiracy? Is there some, yeah, is there some like overarching societal thing controlling right this you know yeah and i i wrote this in the margin at this point this story should be called the misunderstood artist <laughs> you know like it really sets this up at this point that the public is just never going to understand someone who is this far ahead of his time or this devoted to his art. I, I love that it's called a hunger artist rather than the hunger artist. Yeah, I do too. And I also have seen some more recent translations that call it a fasting artist, uh -huh. which I think misses the point. I think there's I think there's kind of a problem sometimes when when we uh, reach like they've they've modified the metamorphosis to the transformation right. and Proust is not remembrance of things past, but in search of lost time. And I think they're sometimes they miss the point of the translation, which is to preserve a kind of poetry or an air of mystery or a, an ambiguity or just a, they reduce the complexity of it. They make it more simple. And I think it's less good. I like that. This is a hunger artist. That is, what he's trying to do is not just break a record for fasting and the number of days, but he's wrestling with something elemental to all humans, which is hunger. And he's conquering that. He's, he's demonstrating his ability to expand what it means to be hungry. Yeah, plus, you can't really die of fasting, can you? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Loses, loses some teeth yeah. calling a fasting artist. So then there's a part where I mentioned this already where the revulsion at fasting is started up. The public has lost its taste for something. It seems that they've lost their taste for something so brutal. And it kind of reminds me of those boxing matches that used to go a hundred rounds or they'd box until the mm. death or something or gladiators are like this or you could say the nfl at some point maybe we'll look back and look at that and say boy how did they celebrate those you know getting your bell rung and the you know, whatever they used to call them the meat grinder drills and the smashing of helmets which we're kind of getting away from a little bit now but there's this sort of feeling that the public doesn't like the memory of itself of how it used to gawk at the hunger artist, you know, everyone's maybe slightly ashamed of whatever you might call it, the predatory nature of that. But then the circus comes to town 
And the hunger artist doesn't want to be inside the ring, even though he's somebody who could maybe claim that role as someone who's still at the peak of his powers. He doesn't want to read his contract because it would depress him too much. (laughs) But then he suggests that he actually should be outside with the animal cages. And we're really seeing the move here from him as an artist to him as something more like an animal. You wonder what's going to happen, whether he's going to act out against his fans now that they've, you know, kind of lost interest, lost, he's lost his charm. Yeah. And we're getting right up to the point where we're going to take a break and finish up the rest of the story. But it just, I I really was struck here by the, the, I mean, there's some great details about how even though he says, I want to be outside, he doesn't actually say because I'm an animal or anything that clumsy, but he says it was, after all, easily accessible, as if it's just a a technical choice to be out there with the animals. But for us, it emphasizes how much like an animal he is, and it gives us this picture of the lumps of flesh that are being brought to the animal cages to feed them, which which makes the hunger artist really angry. At this point in the story, I was really thinking about how sad it is when people are moving on, and there's a nostalgia, and I kind of grew up in these county fairs and and village carnivals and celebrations and and I remember walking with people. I mean, we used to see nostalgia acts. We'd have uh, shows with has been rock groups and and old singers that uh, could no longer command the arenas anymore you know groups like air supply and uh people like that belinda carlisle came one year and you know it's sort of people who were uh on tour as these old acts which is a little bit like the hunger artist at this point in the story but i also remembered going with my dad to uh a cakewalk to see a place where they did cakewalks do you know what a cakewalk is no so it's like this it's like at this little village fair, and they would have numbers on the ground, and you would pay like a ticket, you know, buy a ticket, and then you go on this cakewalk, and you're walking around in a circle, and going from number to number, and then they tell everyone to stop, and then they pick a number out of a hat, and whoever had that number would win a cake. <laughs> whoever was standing on the number that they picked would win a cake. And my dad had won one when he was a little kid. He had won a cake and he never forgot it. And so we went to this park where he had won the cakewalk and he told me all about it. And he was talking about how how great it was and you know how much fun he had that day. And I remember just sitting there thinking, a cake like that? <laughs> <laughs> you can buy those at the store, you know, or make one. You can just buy a, a mix in a box and you can make a cake in like an hour. And it just seemed like I had no interest and I felt sad for the the bygone era. And I kind of was feeling that way at this point in the story, that everyone is moving on from the hunger artist. And it made me really sad to think of him alone in his cage uh, and nobody caring anymore. <laughs> oh man it's uh yeah you, you you sort of don't know how much you know you can really cheer for him anymore because like what will be the ideal that he returns to to you know performing again i mean it, yeah. it seems like 
that time is is done. Yeah. No, that I mean that's so well done by Kafka. Yeah, there's the line where it says something like, "What could he do? He could hardly be expected to return to village fairs after having toured <laughs> Europe, and you know, <laughs> and you know, it's like a a movie star who uh, Norma Desmond, right? Who's uh, the movie star, how could she do television at this point or or do a simple play when she was in the movies? And, you know, he says the world is cheating him of his reward. That's his problem. We've been building to this the whole story, whether he'll be allowed to complete his art and fulfill his destiny. Uh, and we're right on the verge. So let's stop there. We're going to take a quick break. We'll listen to the end of the story. And then Mike and I will come back to give our thoughts and wrap things up. Many more days went by, however, and that too came to an end. An overseer's eye fell on the cage one day, and he asked the attendants why this perfectly good cage should be left standing there unused with dirty straw inside it. Nobody knew, until one man, helped out by the notice board, remembered about the hunger artist. They poked into the straw with sticks and found him in it. Are you still fasting? asked the overseer. When on earth do you mean to stop? Forgive me, everybody, whispered the hunger artist. Only the overseer, who had his ear to the bars, understood him. Of course, said the overseer and tapped his forehead with a finger to let the attendants know what state the man was in. We forgive you. I always wanted you to admire my fasting, said the hunger artist. We do admire it, said the overseer affably. But you shouldn't admire it, said the hunger artist. Well, then we don't admire it, said the overseer. But why shouldn't we admire it? Because I have to fast. I can't help it, said the hunger artist. What a fellow you are, said the overseer. And why can't you help it? Because, said the hunger artist, lifting his head a little and speaking, with his lips pursed as if for a kiss, right into the overseer's ear so that no syllable might be lost. Because I couldn't find the food I liked. If I had found it, believe me, I should have made no fuss and stuffed myself like you or anyone else. These were his last words, but in his dimming eyes remained the firm, though no longer proud persuasion that he was still continuing to fast. Well, clear this out now, said the overseer, and they buried the hunger artist, straw and all. Into the cage they put a young panther. Even the most insensitive felt it refreshing to see this wild creature leaping around the cage that had so long been dreary. The panther was all right. The food he liked was brought him without hesitation by the attendants. He seemed not even to miss his freedom. His noble body, furnished almost to the bursting point with all that it needed, 
seemed to carry freedom around with it too. Somewhere in his jaws it seemed to lurk. And the joy of life streamed with such ardent passion from his throat that for the onlookers it was not easy to stand the shock of it. But they braced themselves, crowded around the cage, and did not want ever to move away. Okay, we're back. What an ending. What did you think, Mike? It's it, it's such a great ending. I mean, you know he has to die. Yeah. But the <laughs> the ignoble way that they just dump his body and Yeah. They, they even throw him out. They it's stop. Like, he's he's setting the record, but they even stop uh changing yeah. the the number of days because nobody could even be bothered to change them anymore. <laughs> so it's like nobody's even recording that this is the record. People are so there's so little interest in what he's doing. The sem- semioticians love this novel this the short story. I mean the the way it's such a it's such a reminder that art is ultimately something that nobody has to pay any attention to. Yeah. Right, and nobody does. And he says the the famous line, forgive me, I wanted you to admire it, but you shouldn't admire it. Well, why not? Because I can't help it. I couldn't find the food I liked. <laughs> uh, yeah, he says, great. believe me, if I had found what I wanted, I would have <laughs> gobbled it up just like you, you know. But uh, so was it art then, his devotion to art, or did he just not like daily life? What do you make of the line i couldn't find the food i liked you know i i, f- I find that line just this perfect balancing act mm. between mm-hmm. humor and um disturbing yeah right. um, it's it's kind of like a line from like a crazy person <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, right it's almost like kafka the perversion of kafka yeah basically saying um this will throw all of this into some confusion. And that confusion is my art. That confusion is what I do. That confusion is what makes uh, readers unsettled in the way that I think is true to the human experience. I mean, I, I thought of Sylvia Plath's poem, Lady Lazarus, that mm-hmm. has the line, um, dying is an art like everything else. I do it exceptionally well. Yeah, right, <laughs> right. Uh, 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 no, it's a, it's, it's a great ending. And again, it's, 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 you know, he pulls it off. It's, it's the type of ending that you feel a little cheated but you also feel um, very satisfied yeah. because it has this weight that this is the way it had to be. Yeah, yeah. You know? And you don't feel too cheated in a short story that's only 10 or 12 yeah, pages long. that's true. You know, you feel like I've invested, you know, I haven't invested days in this. I've invested 20 minutes yeah. or so. And there's this beautiful phrase, too, that I missed the first time around. I noticed uh-huh. it the second. In his dimming eyes remained the firm, though no longer proud, persuasion that he was still continuing to fast. So it's <laughs> it's like his dying, he believes, 
there's a firm mm-hmm. persuasion that he's still continuing to fast, but he's no longer proud of it. That's the difference. He's uh-huh. dedicated to his art. It's killing him. He's going to stick to it, but it's not triumphant. It's more like he's clinging to it. No, it's great. I mean, I it's one of the few things I haven't underlined. Mm. A, yeah, I, I love the panther, too. I love yeah. the way... So they they bury like, the hunger artist, straw and all. Yeah. <laughs> I love that that they just—he's not even worth separating out from the straw. They just shovel the straw right into his grave, and then the panther. Uh, what did you like about the panther? I just like how it—it's almost—it's almost a relief mm-hmm. to have this thing that you can plainly understand. Yeah. And you can, you know, people have gone and seen lions and panthers at the zoo and thought, you know, okay, this is a fierce animal that's being like boxed in so I can look at it. Yeah. And I get it. And there's nothing to think about. Yep. You know, there's nothing to like interpret. It's just instinct and life. It's, It's just there to inspire uh, or not to inspire the way artistry might, but to arouse excitement and fear and just to kind of embrace the kind of, what's the line? The joy of life streamed with ardent passion from his throat. Freedom lurked in his jaws. And it's such a different, such a different spectacle than the hunger artist, where everything is so complicated trying to watch the hunger artist because you're you're gawking at him, but it's it's kind of disgusting and kind of cruel to be seeing him in this cage. But even though the panther, you could Kafka could have made that a kind of cruelty in seeing this beast in a cage. He seems to go out of his way to basically say this is still a wild animal that can be appreciated for being just pure life itself. I go back and forth thinking that, that the story is snobby um, mm. because ultimately it's it's not, not an art form that <laughs> it, it's not a, it's not an acceptable art form today. I mean, what, what, what to make of something that's, you know, esoteric and also, kind yeah. of, you know, what is it elitist? You know? Right. That the the public yeah. can't appreciate the yeah. the uh, finer qualities of hunger art. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah. let's talk about the last sentence then. Or you know, it was not easy for onlookers to stand the shock of it, and they did not ever want to move away. Yeah. Did you take that to mean the world will always favor life and power over weakness and and artistry? Or did you take that as Kafka saying, yeah, they didn't ever want to move away for now, but we know that this is a fad that will pass too. I guess more the latter that they, that, well, I was thinking more that they, they, the audience needs something. Yeah. Whether it's hunger art artists or panthers or just something so yeah right, i guess right. more like you're saying that it's it, this this too will pass yeah okay well there's a couple of things we haven't touched on yet one is nietzsche we know that kafka read nietzsche and it's hard to read the panther and a lot of the themes of this the tension between 
I guess, the virility of life and the feebleness of art without thinking of Nietzsche. And here's a quote uh, that I pulled from Nietzsche. Quote, a living thing wants above all to release its strength. Life itself is the will to power, which is from <laughs> uh, Beyond Good and Evil. And that, that seems like, seems to be what Kafka puts into the panther. But he, for the artist, the hunger artist, he seems to be saying, well, there's a whole other thing that living things might want, which is not to release their strength, but to to shrink or to hide or to fade away, to be left alone with the act of creation, and in some ways to not live at all, but to to live only through art. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I resisted a little bit trying to overthink the story because mm, yeah. because it's so high concept and yep. because I started to read some criticisms of the story yeah. and um, literary critics and also cultural theorists um, have gone kind of apeshit over the story. <laughs> well, and the the whole uh, Christianity <laughs> is another big angle. Is, yeah, like is Jesus. This a, we haven't touched yeah. on that at all. Is but, this a yeah. Christ-like figure? And I... I read that yeah. kind of thing and just think, why cloud the story with this? We yeah. have we have enough about art. We have enough about, uh, you know, human beings and spectators. And to relate it, I, I mean, I like that there are sort of parallels, but I think I don't want to reduce the story to just a parable or just an analogy. Yeah, no, no, I agree. Completely agree. I did find it interesting to think of him not so much as Jesus, but as a monk. You know, the monk who's not exactly celibate, but who has no sexuality and who has a higher purpose and is full of self-abnegation and who then is is achieving something greater through all of this deprivation. But again, I, I, I think it's not a monk. I like the idea that it's a hunger artist. <laughs> <laughs> I'll stick with the story as it is. There was an early draft of A Hunger Artist where a cannibal comes to visit the hunger artist. Huh. And he has rough manners and a shock of red hair. <laughs> and here's the here's the description that was in that story. The sight they're talking about is his hair. Kafka made a lot of his hair. Uh, the, the description is, the sight was not at all ridiculous, but was terrifying, as though this superhuman head of hair indicated superhuman appetites and the strength to satisfy them. <laughs> 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 Why do you think he took the cannibal out? It was probably detract, um, distracting yeah. people from, you know, the, the hunger artist that, I mean, other than the hunger artist and the impresario, Everybody else is just a faceless, you know, yeah. Yeah. Um, you, know uh, uh, you know, audience member. Yep. It's a, so, in that way, this is not unlike like a Greek. Tra it has a feeling of a Greek tragedy. The chorus. Know? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And there are people kind of, you know, on in the wings, just playing a role. Mm -hmm. And I wondered if the cannibal maybe hit some of the themes a little too hard. Yeah. You know, that the meat and the kind of going the other way on hunger art, that here's somebody who will eat anything. 
Ah, uh, okay. Well, I think we could leave things there unless there's anything else you wanted to add that we didn't cover. No, other than if people like this to definitely read in the penal colony because mm, um, yeah. I, I think I it was probably the first short story that gave me nightmares. Okay, that's a good recommendation. There are a lot of other uh, little Kafka stories and sketches and maybe we'll do an episode just on some of our favorites. Some of them are only a paragraph long, but they're they're often very clever and thought-provoking and probably worth spending some more time with. Yeah, let's so, do it. Mike, uh, let's leave things there. Are you going to eat something now or are you just going to go to bed? <laughs> <laughs> Does reading the story make you hungry? Well, I always I actually have a midnight snack, so... <laughs> And I, on the other hand, will dim my eyes, no longer proud, and slip into my hungry slumber, which you might call art or uh, <laughs> <laughs> or sleep. Mike, thanks for joining me on the History of Literature. Thanks, Jack. Okay, there we go. Wasn't that fun? I love that story. My thanks to Mike, as always, for helping me to dig into that one. It's like an excavation, going back through memories, memories of my younger self reading Kafka, who was writing decades before and who was himself recalling a bygone age, layers upon layers upon layers of time, and yet the humanity shines through. What a great story. You can get more Kafka at episode 134 of the History of Literature podcast, Franz Kafka on the Greatest Night of His Life. More about short stories at episode 57, where Mike and I look at stories by Lydia Davis, Donald Barthelme, Alice Monroe, Italo Calvino, and many more. That's the whole genre of short story we looked at in that episode. We did a deep dive into The Bear Came Over the Mountain by Alice Monroe in episode 115, and we looked at... Heart of Darkness, in episode 110. That's just a few of the many previous episodes on the History of Literature podcast that you might want to check out. If you have a suggestion for a short story you'd like us to cover, let us know. You can email me at jackwilsonauthor at gmail.com. That's J-A-C-K-E, wilsonauthor at gmail.com. Or you can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash historyofliterature or Twitter at thejackwilson. Mike's on Twitter at LiteratureSC. That's for Literature Supporters Club, the club of which he is the president. Or you can just go straight to historyofliterature.com. Leave a comment there. And of course, if you'd like to help support the show, you can head on over to patreon.com literature, where all the cool kids are hanging out. Maybe not the cool kids, but the very generous ones who have all my gratitude for their very generous support. And I also want to thank the people who have donated through historyofliterature.com slash shop. Your support is also extremely appreciated. And you have all helped me to keep this little raft afloat. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.